The Athletic. Let's talk about six, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about six. Robertson, the cut back towards Henderson with his left foot. What a finish by Jordan Henderson. So Liverpool in a different league altogether and led by the magnificent Jordan Henderson in a Derby Day win as big as we've seen for many a year. And of course, it's another game where they've scored four. It's a bit of a regularity, isn't it? That plus remembering the great Ray Kennedy on today's pod. I'm Steve Hoppersall. This is the Red Agenda. Simon Hughes and Ollie Kay are today's guests on the pod. We'll start with something that Thierry Henry said uh, on the TV coverage last night, Si. He described Liverpool at the moment as being on a different planet. And it's fairly hard to disagree. Last night, they, they set off like a steam train. Could have been six goals up inside the first 20 minutes. Could have been four goals up inside the first 10 minutes. Really, really passed the ball well. And it really impacted on the atmosphere inside the ground. I felt you could almost feel the sort of the any amount of enthusiasm was, was sucked out of the ground because Liverpool were just so convincing. You know, very slick, very confident. Salah, he actually could have scored twice before before he scored the most difficult chance that he scored. One of them was in a great save from from Jordan Pickford. The other one, he, he was stretching to get on the end of a cross, but. One on one, you know, I can't think of many times when he's he's missed those sorts of sprints towards goal, and usually it ends up in the back of the net. It was just a, such a great finish, and um, I just think at the moment Liverpool can blow anybody away. Really, I mean, I don't want to be turning it into a negative, but I suppose Everton's goal came out of absolutely nothing. He didn't have to do anything to to get the goal, which remains that little bit of nagging concern, I'd say. But in attack at the moment, they're just unstoppable. Ollie, you've got to say, this derby turned out to be everything that Everton absolutely feared. I, I suppose, you know, in the build-up, Liverpool very much billed as favourites. And I think they ruthlessly demonstrated just how massive the gap... I don't remember the gap ever feeling this large. Yeah, it was... I mean, there's normally that sort of sense of, you know, it's a derby, anything can happen, form book goes out the window. And the last decade, it generally hasn't, or, you know, since, since Klopp arrived and since Liverpool have established themselves or re-established themselves above Everton. There hasn't really been a great deal of jeopardy in some of those games, but the games at Goodison have generally been drawn over the last few years and that one never felt like it was going to be a, a draw. It never felt like Everton were really going to lay a, a glove on Liverpool. It was There was a real gulf in quality, in intensity, in, in confidence, in everything really. And look at the team's... When they came out, there's been the odd game recently with Liverpool where you look at the midfield perhaps and, and say, oh, you know, they're, are they a bit light today? And it has sometimes proved that way. But with that midfield, Henderson, Thiago, uh, Fabinho, it looked so strong. There was no, it, it was just so one-sided. And it right, reminded me of something, maybe we'll, get, we'll move on to this, but it reminded me of something Cy wrote in the summer when uh, when Benitez was appointed at um at Everton, and he, he said, you know, the, the nightmare scenario is already there for Everton. It's that they go into that derby in December um, on a bad run and, and, and Liverpool humiliate them and you've got Liverpool fans singing Benitez's name and that was uh, that was a pretty good forecast, wasn't it, by Si? Um, so, yeah, it, it was everything Everton's fans dreaded, really, and I think it was everything Liverpool's fans were hoping. 
The, the oracle strikes again. It's a reoccurring theme this side. I've got to get one a season. <laughs> it's a fairly, fairly good forecast. How much was this game driven by payback? Do you think, Si? I, I didn't, wasn't really considering that as much. But when I watched Mo Salah at the end do his TV interview and he was asked about you know what had happened to Virgil van Dijk and whether that had driven the team on it, I think his response suggested there was very much an element in the players' minds of actually still remembering what had happened at, G- at Goodison Park. He didn't give a massive answer, but he gave enough to suggest that, yes, there was a bit of payback in this game. I mean, I get the impression Klopp... Is the sort of manager to try and drive a team, particularly by vengeance. But knowing the way, you know, if you look back at the way Liverpool, Liverpool's players spoke in the aftermath of the, the draw of Goodison last season and then obviously the defeat at Anfield, it clearly upset them both occasions, moments in those matches, obviously the outcomes in those matches. And they're obviously top professionals who want to put things right and I mean, I know it's a, a massive cliche, but they did put Everton to the sword last night. I mean, it was it was actually quite painful to to watch from the Gladys Street where I was. I, I was in, I was in with the Everton fans last night, and um, you could sense in that area of the ground, which is often the most boisterous area of the ground, there was a sense of resignation very very early on. Really, yeah. We we should say you were in the Gladys Street, weren't you? Watch, watching the game, the Gladys Street, yeah. So. There'll be a piece going up on the Athletic about that that experience shortly, but um, yeah, you you could feel the people around me. I mean, I, I was speaking to you before we started the podcast, Stephen. There was a sense watching the game on TV. I think that it was quite a hostile atmosphere. You know, the Liverpool players seemed to be getting a lot of stick. I didn't really feel that inside the ground. I, I, it just felt Everton fans recognise Liverpool have a really really good team at the moment, especially after. The results Everton got against Liverpool last season, there was a sense of sort of fatalism. It's like, oh, well, we've had our luck now. You know, we're gonna, it's gonna go the other way this time. And then you roll in the fact that that Liverpool's players, I think Ollie's spot on there about the the midfield. It's the first time, I would say this season, even with some of the other really good victories they've had, it felt like Liverpool. It was it was a really top midfield performance. I, I thought from the three in there. I mean, Jordan Henderson just seemed to get better and better, I, I think. I mean, it was a brilliant captain's performance. Obviously, scores a, a, fa- a fabulous goal. I mean, when, when you score a left-footed shot from, I think it was just outside the box, um, maybe just inside, the amount of chances Jordan Henderson's had from that position <laughs> over a number of years and tends to put them in the stands. When, when he finishes like that in the first... You know the the first minutes of the game, you sort of know you. You know it's not going to go your way. I think, and yeah, it was it was very easy for Liverpool. But I think that Liverpool plays with a great sense of authority as well. Wasn't an easy goal to convert that, Ollie. It, it looked like it. He'd almost got it a yard outside the post before it came back in as well with his weaker foot. Yeah, I mean, the goal he scored against Milan a couple of months ago in the Champions League, I mean, that, that was that got a lot of praise, but that was probably, for him, for for a very good right-footed player who's, who's good at hitting balls from the edge of the box, that was probably a, an easier one to execute. That one, coming onto his left foot in that situation, and he needed to get his body you know, around it and, and body behind it and, and curl it around. Pickford, that that was a that was beautifully done, and I, I mean it was it was one that you couldn't imagine him executing ten times out of ten, for example. But um, I thought he was brilliant for the, I mean for the first half hour last night he absolutely ran the show, and and there are people who I think still 
even after the last sort of four or five years at Liverpool, still, I don't mean among Liverpool's fans, but, uh, you know, in, in the wider football public, there are people who don't rate Jordan Henderson. They don't see what he does. And I think if they see, you know, he didn't have a great Euros, for example. He didn't have a great World Cup for England. I think people who watch him play for England might think he's, a, he's an average player or whatever. But he is a player who sets that tempo for Liverpool and when the tempo is that high, there's nobody better. He, he's he's a player who, if it's a slow game, as it probably quite often is for England or, or against other teams that might somehow briefly succeed in slowing Liverpool down, he can struggle with that, that slower tempo. But when it's a high tempo, which he excels at setting and living up to, he's, he's fantastic. I thought he was absolutely magnificent last night. I thought he was man of the match ahead of even Salah and... Um, Trent and Matip, who I thought was very good for Binio. I thought Henderson was the best of the lot. Yeah, he epitomises all the best elements of a captain, relentless vocally. I don't want to make this into the Thierry Henry quote show, but he but he said, you can't all be Mo Salah, but if you work really hard, you can be Jordan Henderson, the man who lifts the trophy side. What, what do you make of that quote? Well, I think that's sort of get at what Ollie was just saying. They're really in a bit of faint praise in, in, in some to some degree. I mean, I... You know, you can go either either way sometimes with these discussions and, and sort of exaggerate sort of what a good player he is, you know, to try and emphasise that he is a good player. But for Liverpool to play well, he has to play well, really, and he, he obviously has to be involved. I think for England, a bit like Trent, really, he struggles with a very different sort of game plan. Not struggle, but he's not, he's not being asked to do the same things, which is the same issue that that I think Trent has for Liverpool you know when he's on it you know there was a sort of I could sense that sort of controlled aggression in his performance last night you know there were quite a lot of I think they haven't had four players booked in the first half and obviously I think Liverpool had one it wasn't a particularly aggressive game which I thought justified that number those number of bookings but there was quite a few occasions where the players were sort of you know having heated debate and he was always right in the centre of it you know, it was quite clear to me that he he won't allow Liverpool to be to be bullied at any football grounds, really. And I thought that was important. You know, that's particularly important in a derby at Goodison. And he said he said there's been even after games this season where people have been saying, oh, you know, shouldn't they give him that contract and and whatever. But when he plays like that, you just you just think that that viewpoint is an absolute nonsense, really. <laughs> Right, so the um, the seventh best player in the world, Ollie, scored the, the the second goal. I mean, utterly ridiculous, isn't it? If we we think back to this Ballon d'Or listing, that there isn't a better player than him at the moment. And he's the first the first goal he scores to the Liverpool second, wonderful the way he opens up his body. Yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of his performance on the night, brilliant again. I mean, you just almost felt sorry for Lucas Digne up against him, and he was uh, no, he was brilliant, clinical. Also full of imagination and and full of threat, absolutely throughout from the start. But in terms of that Ballon d'Or conversation, Ballon d'Or is about the calendar year. But if you were doing it on this season so far, I don't think there's been any better player in world football so far this season. And I I, I would I'm somebody who would probably at every point over the last 15 years or whatever it's been, 13 years, have said Messi is the best player in the world. Messi is the best player in the world. I think you could very strongly argue that right now Salah is the best player in the world. The quality of his performances, it's not just the it's not just the numbers. You know, the numbers are amazing, but it's the quality of what he's doing, it's the constant threat, and that's what you know Messi has been so good at. He laughed it off a 
afterwards when it, when he was asked about this. But I, you know, internally, I mean, you never see Messi underplaying the fact that he's been named the best in the world and winning the Ballon d'Or. So for people like Mo Salah, it is relevant. It is massively important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, I remember when you know Michael Owen won the Ballon d'Or. What was it, twenty years ago? It didn't feel like that big a deal in English football at the time or in the media at the time. It was. It was. It's become this sort of huge talking point. Um, probably as play, you know, as players have become their own brands and and so on over the last decade in particular. But the last you know the last fifteen years, the, the exposure has changed. The, the Ballon d'Or has become a big part of the football conversation, even if a lot of people are. Well, rightly just say it's an irrelevant part of the conversation because it's a team game. But you can tell players. I mean, you you very often in, in interviews will hear a player say, "Oh yeah, I'd I'd like to win the Ballon d'Or. I'd like to win the Golden Boot." I'd, you know, it's it's an ambition in a way that I don't think it was for say Mike Lowen or Steven Gerrard or you know Frank Lampard, Wayne Rooney. I think it, it's it's a you know Ronaldo was the first person I ever really heard talk about the Ballon d'Or being a goal, you know, an objective in itself. You know, that's clearly worked pretty well for him. Um, you can tell, listening to Salah, that yes, he's a great team player. He contributes to the team incredibly. But yeah, he's he's driven by these individual goals and objectives as well. I think I think all modern players are. Two goals, two brilliant finishes. And it's, it's not just the fact that he's scoring a ridiculous amount of goals, 19 goals in 19 games, Si. It's actually how he's scoring these goals as well. And the assists as well. He's, he's got a, a number of assists this season. Yeah. Uh, which I, I only actually realised yesterday. I mean, if you, if you get a player, I think he's almost into double figures for assists, I think, which is incredible. And again, just shows what we've been speaking about quite a lot, really, that he's, he's more of a rounded player than he was a couple of years ago. I mean, his finishing just generally is, is just sensational, I think. I mean, I, I was right behind the first goal. And from where I was sitting, it, it seemed quite impossible to put it where he did and the Evertonians around me even a couple of them you know obviously the whole sort of stand fell silent and one or two of them were like you know what a finish that was you know there's not much you can really say to to that the second goal again I mean it feels like he's had so many of these chances in his Liverpool career where he slipped in and he's got a clear run on goal the only time I can think where he's actually missed some of those chances were the infamous nil-nil draw in 2019 when Jordan Pickford denied him at Goodison, which many people will say cost Liverpool a title. Um, but beyond that, I can't think of many occasions where he's missed a one-on-one -on -one where he's had to sprint towards goal for maybe 20 to 30 yards. Think, I think, about his his finish. And there's not been many occasions where he's, he's put it wide or let the keeper save. He's very clinical. And at the moment, the way he's performing, you just need to give him a sniff at a chance and he's in. I think that sort of sense of anticipation is always reflected by the reaction of the crowd. And whenever he gets the ball, now you sort of notice that the crowd, whether it's at Anfield or, or at um, another ground, sort of goes very quiet because he, they anticipate something maybe quite special is about to happen. And and if you're on the last defender side, like Seamus Coleman was, you, you're almost a bit wary that he's going to pick your pocket because he's done it so many times. Yeah, I mean, it was a strange performance by Seamus Coleman. I thought he, he spent the first sort of 10 minutes trying to almost prove like he was the local hard knock. And got himself so wound up that he started making mistakes, it seemed to me. And then obviously that mistake came in the second half and 
in many ways a symbol of Everton's problems. I think because they 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 have needed a right back for for quite a long time to not necessarily do replace him, but succeed him and and and, and fill that space because he has been a great player for Everton. But he's still there and really really sort of you could see that the, the gulf between him and Mane. I thought in the first half, I mean Mane. Probably we won't speak about too much because he didn't score a goal. But I thought in the first half his threat was was very real down that side, and obviously as I say, it didn't sort of contribute in 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 the sense, in, in an obvious sense. But he was just always there, always always looking like he might do something. So yeah, you, these players, it's the way Liverpool play as well. You know, if they are on the front foot. They're trying to hunt you down and. They're trying to 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 capitalise on a mistake. So even if you're on the halfway line and you've got easy possession of the ball, if if you if you switch off even for a moment, you you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. And that's what that's what happened to Seamus Coleman. Imagine the scenario: a much-loved and inspirational leader has announced his intention to take a career break, and you need to find someone just as tactically astute and charismatic, but perhaps without the glasses and the teeth. Well, when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They've even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash walk. That's L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com slash walk. W-L-K to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We've seen a couple of games this season where Liverpool have squandered a two-goal lead against Brighton. And of course, they're 2-0 up. It could have been more Ollie within the first half hour. And then they sort of got sucked into this ugly game for sort of 10 minutes. But they did manage to sort of rectify that. Yeah, I think Liverpool were probably quite grateful for the half-time whistle. I mean, not that they were massively up on the ro- against the ropes or anything like that. But it, was, it just came at a time when Everton were just starting to build up not sure about head of steam but but you know some momentum in the game Liverpool had lost that sort of early domination and and some of their rhythm that they they'd shown in the first 20 minutes or so so i think Liverpool were probably grateful for the half time whistle when it came just went in and and probably took a breather and i mean they, I, I don't think they particularly did anything different in the second half they just sort of picked up where they'd started the game really they you know they it was it was the same and obviously the 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 third goal the the, the Salah second goal came Quite soon, quite early in the second half, and I think that was that was that really. I, I, I think, yeah, Everton. I mean, look, it was so one-sided the game as a as a whole. But there was just that period. What was it about thirty to forty-five minutes where you thought, well, Everton have got the goal. If they could somehow get another goal, you know, this could this could get very interesting. But it, I don't know. It, it never really felt as if they were going to get the goal. I, I thought Liverpool even at their most uncomfortable in that game, were fairly comfortable. Um, very good run from from Gray for the, to, to get between uh, Alexander-Arnold and Matip for the goal, and nice finish, but it was... Um, if you were focusing on, on Everton's attacking threat, I don't think you'd be um, talking for very long, really. 
No. Um, so Jota with, with the fourth. He seems to be weighing in quite a lot recently, side. Fantastic finish. Maybe Alan should have done a little bit more in that situation, but you, you can't deny the finish. It, it was almost like, dare I say, it was like Alan Kennedy against uh, Real Madrid in, in 81. <laughs> Smashes it in that near side. I think Alan could have done a, a lot more in a lot of situations, to be honest, last night. Um, <laughs> he just seemed not just one, but two or three yards behind the play. Diogo Jota, he's a strange player, I think, because he obviously doesn't sort of draw you in in the way that, that Firmino does. You know, a player who works tremendously hard and has so much skill and ability. I think what I like about Jota is he, he simply doesn't give the ball away as much when he, when he does get it. And obviously, he, he's I think he's a better finisher than him. You know, he, he absolutely deadly. You give him a chance and he, he scores. I think the, the only one this season that he... He's missed was was it the game against Crystal Palace or Burnley when he, he missed an, a, more or less an open goal and I was I can't believe he's actually missed that because he's he's so so deadly but that was some finish last night I mean wow actually you, you could compare it to Robbie Fowler against Peter Schmeichel I, I would say you know all those years ago at, at Old Trafford it was very similar just like I remember Schmeichel sort of fell backwards like he'd been harpooned in the throat. Jordan Pickford did something similar last night. Just looked absolutely helpless in the in the photographs from behind the goal that I saw. So, yeah, I mean, he, he he's flying at the moment. Two goals on Saturday against Southampton from a collected distance of about eight yards, and then that which just shows you, you know, that if you again if you give him a chance, just Liverpool and attack. Just as your mate Thierry Henry said, Steve, it's just uh, very difficult to stop. He was quite efficient on the telly last night, was Thierry. Where, where does this derby go down, do you think, Ollie? Where will people reflect on it in the future? Well, what strikes me, or what, what struck me watching it yesterday, was, I mean, or last night, was, was you know, in, in the space of six weeks, Liverpool have gone to Old Trafford and won 5-0 and gone to Everton and won 4-1. And those are results that are sort of beyond a Liverpoolian's wildest dreams. I mean, in, in terms of, I mean, there have been a lot of wins at Goodison, this century, I mean, the 2000s, there were some good wins, memorable wins, um, dramatic wins, but nothing ever as one-sided as that. I mean, to be honest, the scoreline could have been, a, it could have been an Old Trafford-type scoreline, it could have been a 5-0, it could have been a sort of, you know, like the one in 1982 that, that is still sung about to this day. It could have been one of those. So, I mean, the scoreline, it looks absolutely emphatic. It was probably even more emphatic than that. And I think... What has to happen for Liverpool is is that you know it has to be not just uh, you know a couple of really big wins on on the way to a really good league season. It's got to be uh, you know the the overriding ambition is clearly to to win the league again and to win the league in front of a crowd. And I think if it's if come the end of the season they're looking back at a team that won the league and 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 that won five 0 at Old Trafford and four one at Goodison, I think that those results and those performances and victories will be remembered a lot. You know, I think they will go down in the in the archives, whereas perhaps if they finish a, you know, a very creditable second or third, those wins won't be remembered in quite the same way. Would that be fair? It's a really good point. I mean, obviously they are the the leading scorers at the end of this season. Will it be the leading scorers or the best defensive unit side that actually claims the honours? That's a great question. I mean, Chelsea. Am I right in saying is Chelsea's leading scorer still Reese James? Is is that right? Now, my concern for Chelsea is is the you know, you need your strikers to be scoring more goals than that. Um, if you're seriously going to win the league, if you've got serious aspirations of winning the league, I, I think. Chelsea have conceded just six. 
Yeah. Which are obviously- Man City conceded eight. Liverpool conceded 12. 12. So there's not much in it really, is there? I think Liverpool should take enormous enormous belief from, from what they've got up front, which is better, a better balance, more experience, more knowledge, I would say, of what needs to happen than what Manchester City have and what, what Chelsea have. As we discussed on the pod before, Steve, I, I do have still a few concerns about some of the chances that Liverpool give away. I mean, uh, Southampton could have scored four at Anfield on Saturday and they, they they played terribly. I mean, they played really, really badly, Southampton, I thought, and he still created four, four good chances. Everton's goal last night just, just came out of absolutely nothing. So that is a concern. But I also feel, I felt over the last few weeks that bit by bit, bit by bit, Virgil van Dijk is getting better. Again, he's becoming more confident. And as Oli mentioned before, the midfield feels like it's getting a bit more settled now as well. Andy Robertson, one or two, you know, maybe quite reckless, not reckless tackles, but, you know, could have ended up with, got a book and a thing, and then in the first half, I know one of the other players got booked in the other end of the pitch. I couldn't see exactly what happens. But he seems to be getting a bit more of a, of a rhythm to his game. So when you put all that in place, you sort of think, well, Liverpool are going to be in a good place. But as we've discussed before, concern is January, three important league games, one of which is Chelsea away, which, as it stands, you're going to be without arguably the greatest forward on the planet and Mo Salah and, you know, his sidekick up front, Mane, who's been quietly leading the goal-scoring charts with him. So um, I don't think there's much to separate the three teams, really, although they've all got different strengths and weaknesses. I can see... They're either being propelled by the strengths or undermined by the weaknesses in in equal measure in some ways. But for me, I, I just feel that Liverpool and City are a little bit ahead of Chelsea at the moment. Just give a quick thought, Simon. Obviously, you were in the ground. Uh, Rafa Benitez, his name was used as almost a stick to beat the Evertonians with. Even to the extent that the Liverpool fans were singing, you know, Rafa's at the wheel sort of thing. Has he been unfortunate, Rafa? Does it? Does he survive there? Was he just the wrong fit? They're in trouble, Everton. I really do think they are. I think, obviously, he's been unlucky because he's, he's he's missing Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who I think is a very, very good player. He's caused Liverpool a lot of problems over the last couple of seasons. You know, if you get your, your centre-forward pulled out the team for two months, you know, I think any team's going to find that hard. Obviously, that coincided with other injuries to players like Decore and, and Richarlison. But they're in a bit of a corkscrew at the moment and I, I couldn't see any visible sort of plan to try and stop Liverpool last night. Certainly no confidence in the team. The Evertonians held off on, on Rafa till the end, really. I think it was just after the fourth goal went in where he was reminded of where he's, he's where, he, where he used to work. and, and um, So they're obviously not happy. But more of the anger to me seemed to be directed at the board, really, rather than Rafa. I think Evertonians understand that uh, in an ideal world, he wouldn't be their manager, but he's not the cause of all the problems that they have at this moment in time. I mean, there were a few shouts by me for, you know, get, get Big Duncan, which I've got to say, I think is an inevitability at, at some point. I mean, uh, he's been sort of hanging around potentially getting that job for such a long time. Now under several different managers, I just sort of think, well, why don't you give it a go and get it over with, really? But 
Yeah, I, I think they are in trouble. I think they need to find some confidence very quickly, and they've got a difficult run of games coming up. It was definitely, the, I would say, the worst Everton performance I've seen in a derby at Goodison Park in my lifetime. Let's finish the red agenda uh, with a tribute to one of the most complete players that Liverpool have had, Ray Kennedy passing away at the age of, of 70, um, Paisley. Said he was one of Liverpool's greatest players, but also, Ollie, one of Liverpool's most underrated players. Yeah, when when I got into into football age, sort of five or six, Ray Kennedy was, I think he was in his final year or final months at Liverpool. Um, so I, I can't claim to have seen him at, at his peak, but he was somebody who was who was part of that European Cup winning team in 1981 and, and, and had been there, you know, had been there throughout the glory years. Um, under Bob Paisley, having been signed by by Bill Shankly, he'd been part of Arsenal's double winning team and, and a very influential part of D- Arsenal's double double winning team in 1971. And was clearly, I mean, I, I remember seeing, um, I think, with with Bob Paisley years later, where where he was talking about the the various Liverpool players he'd had in down the years, and he said that Kennedy was the one who he was always having to bat away interest from other managers and other clubs. In because he was he was so good he was rated so highly within the game and I there aren't many players who have sort of achieved legendary status at two big English clubs you know you don't get that happening very often in, in England and he's he's one that did and yet he probably hasn't had that massive profile outside of Liverpool's fans and outside of Arsenal's fans down years so he didn't he didn't seem to really get into the England. Um, squad on a, on a regular basis didn't make much of an, a, an impact on, on the national team and that was probably um, Liverpool's and Arsenal's gain was was England's loss really but it, it's it's yeah he, he was clearly you, you just watch the watch the the footage of him and, and there was a lovely clip uh, you know little, little video that Liverpool put up the other day and showing some of his goals and and he'd been a sense forward in his youth and he was converted to a left-sided midfielder by Bob Paisley and he just seems like a a really sort of graceful, intelligent player. I mean, he's sort of built built like a boxer, but but with a real grace, skill, poise, composure about him, and and intelligence. You could see the 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 quality of his finishes. They were always really intelligent finishes. There was a nice tribute before the game last night, and and I'm sure there will be before the, you know the the game at Anfield at the weekend. And and um, he's yeah, he, he's just somebody who who will go down as one of Liverpool's great players, and and. I mean, James Pearce did a beautiful piece with with um, with his family and and some of his ex teammates uh, in the summer, um, and I would I would uh, encourage anyone to read that on the Athletic. It's a really nice piece, and I think that the line from his son Dale was that you know his dad had had two lives. Basically, he'd had this period of the first half of his life was incredible and and winning things with Arsenal, winning things with Liverpool, being a you know a great and greatly admired footballer. And then the second half of his life had been this sort of horrendous and really difficult struggle with, with Parkinson's disease. And um, I think, uh, yeah, he, he clearly had had a very difficult time with that. But um, I think people would want to remember him as, as the footballer he was and, and the person he was um, in his heyday. The great Ray Kennedy sadly lost all the former players talking about him in the most, the highest regard. Three European Cups, five First Divisions, uh, truly one of the greats. Uh, that was the Red Agenda. My thanks uh, to Ollie Kay and, of course, to Sam and Hughes as well. And we will return after the weekend's action against Wolves. See you then.